0: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. So, it's after Thanksgiving here in the United States, which means, naturally, shopping, right? (laughs) What better time to shop than when you're stuffed to the brim with food? When I was in high school, I used to work on Black Friday, which if you don't know, is, I, I'm sure you probably do. But if you don't, it's this big shopping day after Thanksgiving in the United States. Um, and I i worked at Oshkosh Begosh, which sells baby clothes. And I uh, i would get there around 11 p.m. the day of Thanksgiving, and I would work until probably 8 a.m., I think. And I, I got to see a lot of very frustrated shoppers not believing me when I said, no. We do not have any more of whatever size that you want in the back. People refuse to believe that. Um, If they insisted, I would go to the back, which literally had nothing, nothing, and I would sit for a minute, drink some coffee, check my phone, (laughs) and then I would go back out and tell them, yes, I checked, but there's no more in that size. And then my friend, who she, she worked with me, we would go to IHOP. We lived in a small town, so our options were limited. And she would deliriously tell me her sister was going to steal her hash browns. That seriously happened more than once. She did not handle lack of sleep well. Um, and Black Friday is something that my mom and I enjoyed when I was young um, in a very low-key type of way, but the situation for retail workers in the United States is not great. And it's a conversation we wanted to revive and revisit in this classic episode. Hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're talking about women in retail today because... As we're recording this podcast, the holiday season is upon us, which means tis the season for shop until you drop in. Yeah, I can't. I'm terrified, Kristen. I can't go
2: into stores normally because it stresses me out so much. Um, and, And by that, I just mean like. You know, the peak time of day when there's a million people at the mall, I just can't do it. I can go early in the morning. I can go right before close. But if there's a million people, I can't do it. Um, And Christmas season, uh, holiday season, gift-giving season, and by that I mean obsessive shopping season, it's all too much. People are all over the place. They are congregating in the stores. They're not walking fast enough. They're picking up the merchandise and just like throwing it or something. I don't know what happens. But basically, what I'm saying is, uh, we don't pay our retail workers enough for them to deal with the horror that is us as consumers during the holiday season.
1: Right. Everybody's shopping for those bargains. You've got Black Friday deals. But imagine, Caroline, all of the things that annoy both of us about holiday shopping the traffic, the people, the mess, the stress. That Beatles uh, Christmas song playing over and over again, <laughs> simply having a wonderful Christmas time. It doesn't stop I from Thanksgiving to Christmas Eve. Uh, it's okay one time. <laughs> um, but imagine having to do that every day. Um, and if you are a... Part-time retail worker or full-time retail worker already, things are stressful, and then the holidays just ramp it up. And, of course, every year, seasonal retail workers are hired on. This year in the U.S. alone, there are 700,000 projected seasonal workers who will be hired, um, although some of that is transitioning from traditional storefront to warehouse work because Mm -hmm. of people like me who uh, prefer Amazon Prime to the mall, also supporting local independent artisans uh, and makers whenever I can, of course. Uh, But all of this just exacerbates these...
2: Year round issues. Yeah. Rude customers who were yelling at you as if things are your fault when you are the floor walker. Um, Messy customers, people, again, throwing merchandise, it seems like. I mean, you and I, Kristen, have talked about the horror that is H&M on like a Saturday. It gets even worse around the holidays. Um And the awkwardness of having to push a store's credit card on customers. You don't like it, customers. Neither
1: does the person behind the register. And that was something I hadn't thought about until we ended up on a Reddit thread asking retail workers, like, what don't we know? What's happening behind the scenes? And the pushing the store credit card was something that came up a lot because some stores, a la the whole Wells Fargo fiasco of people really pushing those credit cards, managers setting quotas that they have to hit and really making them as uncomfortable as we are. And, and the twisted thing about that is too a lot of times the the employees who are being pressed to push these credit cards on us are not making very much money to begin with. You know? Um, And retail represents such a massive sector of jobs. Oh,
2: yeah. Fifteen million people work retail jobs in the United States alone, and more than half, about 55 percent of them, are women. And I didn't realize this, but cashiers and retail salespeople, uh, those are the two largest occupations in this country, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, and that equates to about 7.8 million people.
1: And those 7.8 million people are making around 22,000 a year, median, and one in three are part-time, and a lot of those are also working nights and weekends. Um, And you see a lot of disparities uh, that we're going to get into uh, deeper into the podcast, but In terms of transitioning from part-time to full-time and then in management, it's really, really tough, especially if you are a woman, and even more especially if you are a woman of color. So if you look at Walmart alone, women make up about 57% of their workforce, but a study from the think tank Demos found that only 29% were promoted to store manager over a 10-year period. So, tales all old as time, you definitely see a disproportionate number of fellas in management, supervisory, and ownership roles, and more of that 55% of women in the workforce who are in uh, the lower-paying, cashier jobs, and even just the the salesperson jobs.
2: Yeah, and this kind of reminds me of the episode we did on waitresses, women working in restaurant server positions. But by that, I mean the situation is not great in terms of working conditions and also compensation. Uh, About 1.3 million women in retail live at or near the poverty line, and one in five are the sole breadwinners for their family. Also... Uh, one in five women who work retail want more hours. They want to be able to work more, make more money, but they can't get them um, for a variety of reasons. Employers might want to maintain just a part-time workforce. They don't want to pay you full-time. Um, but also there's the issue that 50% of retail workers receive their schedules a week or less in advance, which that's great for the employer. They can rem- uh, maintain like a flexible schedule and fit people in where they need to horrifying, though, for the workers who are actually trying to have a life and plan things like childcare, elder care, doctor's appointments, uh, their own holiday shopping, just so many other things that can really put your life into a tailspin if you can't even plan like a couple days in advance.
1: And I would argue that in terms of not giving people more hours, not having more full time employees is maybe ninety nine percent to do with not wanting to pay uh, benefits, you know, because once you get to... Uh, the full time status then it costs employers more right. and there's a whole other conversation uh, that we could have that we don't have time to have uh, in this podcast about changes the Obama administration made lowering the threshold for uh, employees to have to be paid overtime for employees to have to start giving paid sick leave and vacation things that really um, I-, I believe that all workers should be afforded uh, but but when you look too at a lot of these one in five women who are, are part time and want more hours, they're working like thirty one yeah. hours. So because when you m- might hear part time and think, oh, it's what like fifteen hours a week, twenty hours a week. No, it's almost full time, but not right. quite, just to uh, keep that overhead low. And,
2: of course, not surprisingly, there is a wage gap issue as well. Uh, Full-time retail saleswomen earn about 68 cents to every dollar a man in the same position earns. And to put that in perspective, that woman would need to work an extra six months to match that man's annual income.
1: Yeah, and these are apples-to-apples jobs, people. We're not talking about a cashier making $0.68 to a male manager's dollar. This is the same across the board. And this reminds me of our conversation about the gender wage gap in uh, custodial work, Mm -hmm. where in these lower paying jobs, we often see that the wage gap widens, um, which seems counterintuitive. But this is another example of that absolutely being the case. And surprise, no surprise, retail has never been particularly kind to women, even though we think of it as a very feminized and woman friendly type of job. Well, now
2: it's very feminized. But again, to harken back to, Kristen, would you say most of our episodes, (laughs) Uh, so many of them uh, teaching? uh, What else? Librarianship. Yeah. The, these things all started out employing men menfolk uh, and then started employing women because they were cheaper. Secretarial work. Yes. So uh, a little tidbit that I, I didn't know. Um, shocking. I'm not fully aware of the entire history of retail establishments. but I am now. Um, (laughs) We're going to be so fun at holiday parties, by the way. I I can't (laughs) wait to. Yeah, I'm just going to guilt everybody at Thanksgiving. Uh, The world's first department store opened in 1796. It was called Harding Howell and Company's Grand Fashionable Magazine. Uh, And that was in London. And it had four departments, uh, furs and fans. Really all the important food groups, right? Furs and fans. Haberdashery. I'm sorry. I literally don't know how to say that word without saying it like that. Uh, jewelry and clocks.
1: And millinery. Yeah, I like that they have millinery and haberdashery separate. Haberdashery. Because... I guess, you know, folks are wearing so many hats. You mean, you wouldn't want men and women in the same space. You cannot have the mixing of hats. A, a promiscuous group of hats. So millinery, I would imagine, <laughs> would be safe for the ladies to go in and look at all their, their bims and bobs and ribbons and what, what's not. And, and the for, things with the feathers. Yes. <laughs> and for the men folk to be able to safely go over and smoke their cigars and look at their fedoras. <laughs> um And like you said, the first retail clerks were guys, Uh, and these were men who operated and often slept in their stores. These were small stores, and really there was no major need to hire women because... Fathers would essentially apprentice their sons. It was a family business.
2: Yeah, it kind of reminded me, if anyone out there has watched Deadwood, of the hardware store that the two main guys open in Deadwood. Uh, because they, they basically sleep there. They run this hardware store and they live there. It's their whole life. Their whole existence is around this hardware store. Minus some drama with some
1: prostitutes. Now, Caroline, this reminds me also of uh, the Wild West. Yes. Uh, the Frontier. Mm-hmm. No prostitutes, though. Oh. This makes me think of Nellie Olson in Little House in the Prairie because. Her family, if y'all remember, they owned Olsen's Mercantile, which was the general store. And she was such a snob and so mean because she had access to all the penny candies and the ribbons. (laughs) And I want to say that they also slept above the general store, which I just thought was really cool. But this was also in the phase where my dream car was a camper. So go figure. (laughs) Um, But Nellie... Would not have been the person to have run the the store. Her dad would have passed it down to her brother. And you want to know what changed everything. The same thing that changed everything for white women in employment outside the home and outside the domestic service in the United States. The Civil War. Really, (laughs) wars always Mm -hmm. get women out of the house and into new jobs, and retail is one of those.
2: Yeah, there was a man drain, and I just picture men
1: getting stuck in a drain. The old man drain, it happens. There's the World War One man drain, the World War II man drain, but really without man drains, uh, would we have women's gains? There's a rhyme. Oh, put that on a poster. And was it not, though, considered
2: sort of dirty and scandalous for women to be behind the counter working with money and making these transactions?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was this was one of the first times that female labor was really put on public display. Mm -hmm. So she would have been coming into contact with not only other women, but also with other men. And so if we hop back to London... Where a lot of this stuff is going on initially, you have this rising middle class in the Victorian era and department stores are popping up. And it's deemed inappropriate for uh, for women to be clerks. Uh, snobs called them counter hoppers. Oh, <laughs> but there were some more progressive women who were like, uh, ladies need employment working-class women need to be able to make a wage and in 1859 there was this group of women in london's west side called the ladies of langham place who got together at a coffee house which first of all if y'all have listened to our episode on uh, gender coffee and baristas you know that that's a daring move to begin with because coffee houses were for fellas but these ladies were like, "Nah, y'all, we're going to meet here too. <laughs> and they got together to figure out how to improve employment options for women, and they really inspired what's considered the shop girl revolution.
2: Yeah, and you have one of these ladies of Langham Place, Jessie Boucherette, who called for schools to be founded to train girls to become shop assistants. She said, why should bearded men be employed to sell ribbon, lace, and handkerchiefs, which to me just echoes our advertising, women in advertising episode, where Women are arguing, we need more women in advertising because women can speak to other women. They know what women want, so therefore we need to get women in here. And then there ended up being this, like, pink ghettoization of the products that women were hawking. And to me, this kind of reads like this as well because it's sort of a preview of actually getting more women into these sales lady or
1: shop girl roles. Yeah, and and we learned a lot of this info about uh, the shop girl revolution in London from this fantastic multi-part BBC series that also starts out recounting diary entries from well-heeled women who could afford to go to stores and go to buy their ribbon lace and handkerchiefs from the bearded men and how dismissed they often were by the male clerks and what a drag it often was. And shopping was really not an enjoyable process. All these
2: somber men working as clerks,
1: right. And that was another argument to get women working as clerks because, you know, ladies like ladies, right? Ladies can probably sell better to Ooh, ladies. Are we
2: not kind of touching on emotional labor here?
1: Sure. Oh, God,
2: Smiling, being kind when you don't care. <laughs> there is so
1: much emotional labor that goes into and retail it's ex- work.
2: And it's expected. If you aren't putting forth the emotional labor effort, you're considered rude or a bad employee. Well,
1: because well before the ladies of Langham Place got together at ye olde Starbucks, the guy, the the department store magnate, and his name is escaping me right now, um, had already come up with the philosophy of the customer always being right Mm -hmm. so that was already ingrained and that also establishes this class system that you have behind the counter and in front of it and because of that class and uh, the fact that these women needed those jobs yes from 1850 to 1890 we do see women making the first inroads into retail although some stores hired more than others but What was driving a lot of that for the male shop owners who were hiring them was that there was a large supply of them Mm -hmm. and they came cheap. Like those penny candies. (laughs) They came as cheap as a penny candy. (laughs) Uh, But it's the same kind of thing that we do see with the shift to secretarial work where it's like, well, you know, the women are cheaper. Same thing with librarianship. Well, (laughs) the women are cheaper. And here we're still talking about white (laughs) women, though. True, true, true. And uh, so
2: if you look at 1890, about 1 in 50 salespeople were women. By 1940, though, that was 1 in 16. Um, but it, things were not rosy. Uh it wasn't like there was some like lady utopia behind the counter in these in these shops.
1: I know if only it were all just fun makeover
2: montages. <laughs> oh. Everybody dabbing each other's faces with those huge
1: comically large like uh powder poops. <laughs> <Yes>, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trying on different corsets and fainting into each other's arms. Um and for f- listeners who have have or are are right now working in retail hell. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. not only having that job, but also having that job responsible for your housing? So, And this makes me think of one of my best friends who for a very long time worked at American Apparel. Mm -hmm. And, whew, y'all, she's got some stories to tell. Um, And (laughs) if... If she also had to work at American Apparel and then turn around and go home to the American Apparel dormitories where, I mean, Dove Charlie would probably be, be laying nope. in wait, nope. uh, but that's kind of the situation. So especially for a lot of these stores um, in Britain that were popping up at the time and these shop girls who were moving into the big city, they required women to quote unquote live in or live in accommodations designated by the employer, uh, which is exactly what we were talking about a little while ago on our episode about uh, women flight attendants. The first female flight attendants had to live in stewardess dormitories and that majorly paternalistic move was also really money-grubbing on the part of these shop owners. Oh, yeah,
2: because while they did require the women to live in these dorms, they also required them to pay rent. But the rent was just taken out of their paycheck, which is,
1: that is a dirty move. Yeah, so you're already hiring cheaper labor than men. And we should also mention that another motivation for keeping these women sequestered in these highly regulated dorms was to manage morality.
2: Yeah, but the thing is, when you have these workers who are making such paltry sums of money... It drove many of them to, in order to survive, into sex work. And so you start to see this association. It was already such a scandalous thing to have women needing to work, work outside the home, and no less in a job that required them to interact with all sorts of people. Um, but that's when you really see the strong association between the scandal of having women work as. Uh, shop ladies or shop girls, and assuming that they're all sex workers or prostitutes.
1: Well, because a lot of them had to turn to sex work to actually make ends meet. They didn't make enough money. I mean, this was a very real fact of shop work at this time. And uh, in that BBC series, which we'll link to in uh, the source post for this episode on stuff, mom, never told you.com. Cause it's on YouTube and you should check it out. It's fascinating. Uh, the host goes into uh, one of these very old shops and goes upstairs where the shop girls would possibly meet customers to make some extra cash selling their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we hop back to the U.S., the thing is, as deplorable as these situations kind of were, and I'm not sure how often uh, women in retail at this time in the US were also turning to sex work. I can't imagine that, that none of them uh, were doing it. But it's still these jobs still tended to pay more than domestic labor and manufacturing work, which if you are a working class woman, those are really the only options employment options that you've got. So kind of like secretarial work, While they were being undervalued and underpaid and in some case outright abused, it's like, well, but but at least it's not, at least we're not in a factory.
2: Uh, At least we're not in a factory, but that doesn't mean the work was not punishing. You worked incredibly long hours. Think 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. You'd be stocking things, tidying up and cleaning, having to deal with the emotional labor aspect of customer service, and you better not sit down.
1: Oh, yeah. No sitting allowed. I mean, the conditions were so physically punishing that they prompted Nellie Bly style exposés on the harsh working conditions Uh, in 1884. For instance, there was one published called Death and Disease Behind the Counter. The physical ailments that women in retail often developed became nicknamed the standing evil because they tended to develop anemia and consumption. Uh, There was even this thing called the bustle stick, which was invented at one point that would allow women to just sort of lean back and, and perch on it. So they're not sitting necessarily, (laughs) but they're not quite standing. They can take a break for a second. But unfortunately, the bustle stick never caught on.
2: Yeah, I think you can get something like that now uh, for camping. So when you're on the trail hiking up a mountain, you know, you don't have to necessarily lie down or sit down. You can sort of just lean and perch.
1: I (laughs) am heading straight to REI and asking, uh, Do you have a bustle stick? Where where are the bustle sticks? (laughs) Women. Um,
2: well, yeah. I mean, it was considered in poor taste to be sitting down, and that wasn't just a directive coming from the higher ups in the department store.
1: Customers would
2: complain. Uh, they thought it was like a sign of laziness and disrespect if
1: they saw any of these shop girls sitting down. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's heaped in steeped in classism. Yeah. Uh, and Macy's, probably a, a familiar name to a lot of listeners. 19th century Macy's was real intense, although, on the one hand, they did promote a lot of the first female supervisors way to go Macy's, but Macy's also did not allow sitting and considered what they called unnecessary conversations, grounds for firing. Ooh, Yeah, I mean, like, they had them on a short leash. Don't be too
2: chatty, uh, as one boss told me when I was right out of college. Um... And it is funny, you know, we, in our waitressing episode, we kicked it off by asking women who are in the service industry, do you prefer to be called uh, waiters, waitresses, servers, what? Because what you call yourself and what other people call you, it does matter. Um, and uh, American stores did originally adopt the British term shop girls, but the serious employees
1: preferred Sales ladies. Right. They didn't even want to be called saleswomen. No. They wanted to be called sales ladies. Because again, class. A lady is someone who I mean that denotes a higher class. Yeah, but reading this I was like, oh,
2: I call them sales ladies. Not ironically or or anything. I just call I refer to them as sales ladies. Well, ye oldie sales ladies would be happy
1: to hear that.
2: But you know, I don't call like if I see a woman who's about my age, like working at Best Buy or 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 a J Crew or something, I don't think of her as a sales lady. I tend to think of sales ladies as as the women who are in their fifties, sixties, seventies. Maybe they're at Talbot's. the ones who do bra med- measurements. Yeah, <laughs>
1: sales ladies. Yeah,
2: exactly. My mother was a sales lady. Uh, she worked at Coldwater Creek part time to supplement her flight attendant income slash have something to do on her off time. And uh, I think she would qualify as a sales lady. Uh, She's also the reason that I make sure to always remove my clothes from the dressing room when I am done trying them on. Because if you want to hear a bunch of women complain about you, be the person who leaves your clothes in the dressing room you will be disliked intensely.
1: Well, and speaking of what uh, retail salespeople prefer to be called, let's not forget that they also have names, as we all do. That was something <laughs> on the Reddit thread, yeah. where especially if someone is wearing a name tag, uh, they're like, I'm wearing a name tag for a reason. You can you can call me by my name, and we really appreciate it. Instead if you, of, hey, you? Yeah, if you remember our names. And I have a horrible short-term memory and often in stores like a maidwell where I go too often only when the sale is on sale but still it's too often um and you know whenever you go to try something on yeah. the person says oh okay i'm belinda i immediately forget belinda's name i know and immediately. i hate it but after this episode i'm going to remember belinda <laughs> You're just everyone's going to become Belinda now. But and retail workers listening, let me know. Am I just like overblowing this? Because it's it's got to feel nice and humanizing for people to remember your name when you tell it to them. So just another thing that we can do in addition to keeping our dressing rooms tidy when we're leaving. But back to our history, women. At this time, even though they might have been sales ladies, they might have been a bit more ambitious and cared about their job and had every intention of working in it for as long as they could, they were often considered by employers and kind of just across the industry to be dead-end workers because men were always hired as clerks with the implicit understanding that they were working their way up a ladder and sort of an unofficial apprenticeship. But women were just seen as almost like seasonal workers today, the way that we use them during the holidays. Like we well, just kind of churn through them. Um, no one no one considered an employment ladder for women at the time.
2: I think the one exception that we could cite, or one of the exceptions that we could cite, would be buyers. Uh, a lot of women did start out as uh, shop girls. And were able to work, when I say a lot, I don't actually literally mean a lot. I mean some, uh, worked their way up to being buyers where they would deal with the manufacturers and the designers to get new styles in. And, and a lot of that goes back to, to the attitude that we cited earlier of like, don't women know women better? Um, and so rather than having... Uh, These fuddy-duddy men who just take what the manufacturers make, why don't we get women in here who know how women want to dress themselves and have them uh, set the tone for what the fashions will be in the stores? And so uh, you started to see schools actually having programs for – fashion buying. And, of course, that was that was an arc. That wasn't all at once. It's not like in 1890 they hired a bunch of women and were
1: like, and now we're going to educate you at college for this exact thing. Right, because more often than not, even if a gal worked a swell 16-hour day, she would likelier be fired than rewarded for fear of her eventually demanding a higher salary. Women were expendable. There are plenty of them. They're cheap, just bring them in and toss them out. So we should remake the
2: expendables <laughs> oh. uh, and have it just be shop
1: girls. 19th century British shop girls? Yeah. I'd watch it um, uh, as we- long as Sylvester Stallone is not in it. Um, but here, here's a thing that is absent 100% from our conversation so far women of color. That's because the history of black sales ladies. Was largely non existent pre civil rights. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. <music>
2: So we mentioned the Civil War man drain earlier, you know, men getting caught in the drain like so much hair that you've got to remove. Oh, no, wait, sorry. They're going off to war and women are filling their places. Same thing happened with World War One. So women are becoming more visible as shop girls, as retail workers around this time. But that's still mainly applied to white women, black women who were hired by these retail stores still were relegated to jobs that revolved around the kitchen, the
1: bathroom,
2: service areas, until about the 1960s.
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't mainly white women. It was exclusively white women. And we learned about this in a book by Jan Whitaker called Service and Style, How the American Department Store Fashioned the Middle Class. And she wrote about how before the 1960s, the most visible job... For an African-American woman would have been as an elevator operator until you have department stores, some department stores, swapping them out for sexier white women. Uh, So even elevator operator Mm -hmm. is, is too visible. And you do see organizing and protesting around this time, especially in the 1930s, in black neighborhoods, the NAACP, for instance, initiated a don't buy where you can't work protest that were focused on black neighborhoods where you have stores owned by white people that wouldn't hire black people and so you know these customers were saying "Uh, no this is not right Uh, you're you're going to take our money but you won't hire us no and women were very instrumental in organizing these protests now unfortunately partly because they were so concentrated in predominantly black areas of town, they were largely ineffective in uh, instigating industry-wide change. World War II, however, did afford some black people more sales floor jobs, but as long as their skin was light enough... This goes back to the paper bag test.
2: Yeah, you had to pass the paper bag test and have light enough skin that it wouldn't potentially make white customers uncomfortable. Um, And there were arguments, though, around and after World War II that, well, why would white people be uncomfortable with black people in uh, retail jobs Uh, white people are already accustomed to black people serving them and cleaning up after them in their homes, so why wouldn't we hire them as as retail workers?
1: But to put some numbers around that benevolent racism, shall we call it, a 1948 New York retail customer survey found that most white people were fine with black salespeople if they had light enough skin, but 21% of them did not want them touching clothing, lingerie, or food. So, no, we're actually not. We're not fine with that. Um, and the year before, a New York City report identified one black saleswoman among all the stores on Fifth Avenue.
2: Yeah, and during this time in the 40s, most of those retail job gains for black people were, again, in stock rooms. As long as they weren't visible, then, okay, maybe we will hire you. Um, Store owners were genuinely worried that having black employees be
1: visible would mean it would scare off white customers. Right, because more black employees meant that it would be a safer space for black customers to come in um, and that would trigger all of white customers racism so they would go to Gimbel's instead of Macy's um, and this also brings up another conversation that we could have about the horrendous mistreatment of black customers in retail um, who would go into white establishments and be treated like second-class citizens. That, well, I mean, that, how is that different from now, with black customers being followed around stores? Very true. So you, you, know, you have black customers going to patronizing uh, black-owned businesses because literally those were the only safe spaces for them to shop. Now, once we get to the late 1950s and early 60s, with the civil rights movement, we do see protests ramping up against racist hiring practices, targeting the largest department stores. Um, and, and you do start to see the dial moving a little bit. In 1958, uh, the New York State Commission Against Discrimination kind of patted itself on the back because it tallied up a grand total of 100 black retail salespeople and two in retail management in the city, Um, Now, I don't have the number of 102 out of how many. I mean, it it still has to be a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. And
2: so, you know, a lot of these protests and boycotts that are happening um, did open up some jobs. They did have an effect. But a a lot of the jobs that uh, were opened up were in more failing stores, stores that weren't seeing as much customer traffic anyway, um, or they were not getting hired uh, to work with uh, high-priced home furnishings and fashion. Which also was a struggle for women in general earlier in our history when women struggled to get jobs with furniture. It was, it was considered so dirty and inappropriate for women to work with furniture. Oh, it's big and heavy and dusty. And the same ended up
1: applying to black people in general. But certainly not for a paternalistic reason.
2: No, because these are high-ticket items that we want to move to our wealthier
1: customers. Right, and wealthier customers certainly can't be waited on by our black salespeople. Um, But in the background, too, we have to acknowledge the crucial importance of lunch counter desegregation that was going on because uh, a lot of these were in department stores. So you have this combination of civil rights protests and pocketbook boycotts and lunch counter desegregation um, that is opening the space up slowly but surely. And no surprise, White-owned stores in the South were the most resistant because uh, desegregation. So, for instance, uh, I don't have the exact year, but it wasn't until well into the 1960s that a woman named Dorothea Davis became Charlotte, North Carolina, a relatively large city. Charlotte's first, first black saleswoman in a not-black-owned store.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the retail industry still has not done right by most of its black and Latina and Latino workers in particular.
1: And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Everything we've talked about at this point in terms of the racism that's been deeply embedded in retail from the get-go, it shouldn't be much of a surprise that it isn't really an equitable haven for people of color today, Uh, because like you mentioned, uh, if you're simply a customer... You have to deal with racism so often in the form of racial profiling that we have. We we can't not have a conversation on race and retail without talking about customer profiling. Oh, yeah. And some
2: of our biggest stores uh, have been implicated in cases of racial profiling. Macy's, Sephora, Zara, Barney's, CVS, Best Buy, Ross, Walgreens, Hollister, um, all of these Stores have gotten in trouble for issues of racial profiling.
1: And not to mention, too, uh, issues of black people being killed outright. Um, A lot of this was highlighted in a piece in the International Business Times by Catherine Dunn, uh, who reported that between 1994 and 2002, at least six shoppers died, five of them people of color, in confrontations with off-duty police officers employed as security guards at Dillard's department stores in three states. At Dillard's alone. Just at Dillard's. Well, things aren't great at Walmart
2: either. In 2014, John Crawford III was shot at an Ohio Walmart by security guards just because he picked up a BB gun.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, he was killed. He was shot and killed because he just... Yeah, he just picked up a gun, and the security guard assumed that he was armed and dangerous.
2: Meanwhile, we had those stories a couple years ago of all of those white militants walking into Walmarts wearing guns,
1: and and they weren't killed. Well, it's because America doesn't hate white people. <laughs> and these are just a handful of the instances of, of not just discrimination, but outright violence that people of color, uh, black people in particular— often face as customers in retail stores. And a 2015 Gallup poll found that 24% of black respondents felt they'd been treated unfairly in stores because of their skin color. And honestly, that 24% sounds low to me. And it doesn't get much better in terms of discrimination when we hop behind the counter because we've already talked about the the gendered siloing of low-income jobs in retail well once you toss race and ethnicity into the mix it gets even worse as it often does hashtag intersectionality
2: yeah retail is the second largest source of jobs for black Americans and it's one of the largest sources of new employment across the United States, but not all retail jobs are created equally, as should be no surprise. Um, I mean, you've got a ton of mainstream major stores who face lawsuits for discriminatory hiring practices. Um, What was the story a couple years ago about Abercrombie and Fitch uh, being
1: sued over a woman wearing a hijab? Right. So it ended up going to the Supreme Court and they ruled in favor of the former abercrombie employee um, who was fired because they refused to allow her to wear her hijab on the, the store floor um, and like i said the supreme court ruled in her favor abercrombie has long had a reputation though for uh presenting a very white very exclusionary image um, with its advertising, with its hiring, um, there was one time in New York, and I'm sure a lot of New Yorkers listening uh, have also seen this, uh, where they've got the sales gimmicks with the the white uh, chiseled guys and in, in next to nothing standing outside, and just all of that, just body spray just coming at you. Oh, so much. So much body spray. I had a
2: headache just walking past an Abercrombie, but I'm even surprised that Abercrombie, um, honestly, side note, I'm surprised that Abercrombie even still exists, but... And same with Wet Seal. They've also been uh, nailed for discriminatory hiring practices. I can't believe that store still exists. And
1: Target, place yeah. where a lot of us uh, love to shop in the name of self-care. Um, and, okay, so if we talk again,
2: if we zero in on these black Americans working in retail, they are likelier to be among the working poor. Uh, So, like the overall retail workforce, a majority of black and Latino retail workers do have some education post-high school and about a third are parents, but 17% of black retail workers and 13% of Latino or Latina retail workers live below the poverty line compared to just 9% of the overall workforce and they have fewer opportunities for advancement. They're overrepresented as cashiers, which tends to be the lowest paid retail work and underrepresented in managerial positions.
1: And we talked about a gender wage gap. There's also a racial wage gap. And again, this is coming from uh, research conducted jointly by Demos and the NAACP, finding that black and Latinx full-time cashiers earn 90% of what white cashiers do, which translates to uh, about a loss of $1,800. Now, full-time salespeople, though, it gets even worse. That gap is 25%. White people make 25% more than salespeople of color, which translates to an income difference of $7,500 a year. And consider this. The retail salesperson is the industry occupation with the highest share of workers, but the widest wage divide. And the cashier wage gap, meanwhile, is narrower because the income is just so low to begin with.
2: And so I think all I could keep thinking when I was reading these statistics and how massive and sprawling the retail workforce is, all I could think was, huh, our politicians on the left or the right, whoever, talk about protecting Americans, working for Americans, wanting to uh, help families and, oh, you know, this country uh, just steps on the working poor. Well, a lot of those people are in retail in some way or another. And if we aren't doing more to protect these people, bolster these people, um, make sure that they are making a living wage, uh, that's a good percentage of Americans that are being stepped on.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and it's not just the low wage issue. It's also the instability of that part time work uh, that we talked about and also this thing called just in time scheduling. So in terms of the part time work, again, Black and Latinx retail employees are likelier than white people to be part-time workers, working 31 hours a week on average, even when they would rather be full-time, and then heap on top of that, you know, that that lack of benefits that you would get as a full-time worker. Then you have to deal with the rampant use slash abuse of just in time scheduling, which is the worst and happens most often. Again, to black and Latinx workers. So just-in-time scheduling uh, is basically the nickname for employers giving very little advance notice of your schedule, um, as little as a week in advance. And On top of that, you're also subject to shifts being canceled or getting sent home if it's a slow day. So if you're managing things like transportation costs, uh, being the breadwinner, the sole uh, earner in your household, as a lot of these people are, uh, child care, elder care, all of this is thrown into complete chaos because there is nothing stable about these jobs. And it also prevents you from probably being able to go out and reliably search for better work because you don't know when you're going to be working at the job you have right now. So what do we do? Well, for
2: one, we could raise the federal minimum wage, right? People are on board for that.
1: Uh, Probably not president-elect Trump. Actually, uh, by probably, I mean he's talked openly about how he thinks the minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. Folks, that is not a living wage, especially if you live anywhere close to a metropolitan area. Uh, He thinks that that is too high already. So uh, with the Republicans now in control of the House and Senate, uh, that's not likely to happen in the next four years.
2: Oh, okay. Well, um, maybe big retailers can hop
1: on paying their workers the living wage. Yes, they could do that. They absolutely could do that. You know, if you are a CEO of Target making bazillion million dollars a year, you could reallocate some of that money to pay your workers a living wage. And listeners, if you are curious about What exactly is the living wage for you where you live and work? Uh, MIT has a handy calculator that we will link to in this source post. And for us, Caroline, it's $11.36. A far cry from $7.25.
2: Yeah. um, And, of course, what you often hear from people – This has happened to me on Twitter. It's happened to me uh, from people in my own family. When you discuss things like the minimum wages, well, how are we going to pay for it? Are you going to pay for it? Right. Prices will go up,
1: right? So we will actually be the ones paying... For these, you know, these exorbitant salaries that are essentially subsistence. Yeah, which, again, I would
2: say ties back into an earlier episode we did on the welfare queen stereotype. People are so scared about what the working poor are going to do with more money.
1: Well, they presume that they are lazy and undeserving. You know, we worked hard for our money.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, this Berkeley study crunched the numbers and found that if Walmart, for instance, which, again, has a massive workforce all on its own, paid $12 an hour as a starting wage, shoppers would see a price increase of 1.1 percent or 46 cents per
1: shopping trip. Oh, wow. So. I mean, I don't know, Caroline. 46 cents. That could buy you, uh, like two-and-a-half chicken nuggets at McDonald's. Um, I don't know if we can be that generous. Another thing, though, that uh, Demos and the NAACP recommend, especially for uh, ending that siloing of people of color and also women in general in those lower-paying jobs, is ending employment credit checks because credit checks – are mostly used for uh, things like loans and housing. Uh, And when you start enforcing employment credit checks on a lot of your employees who are already the working poor, it is just automatically disqualifying so many of them for circumstances that they themselves cannot help. And another thing that employers
2: could and come on should do is to ensure more stable hours and predictable schedules i mean uh, letting people know what they're going to be working two weeks out at least is that much of a hardship i mean especially for part-time workers Uh, Ending that whole just-in-time scheduling process or system could go a long way to enabling people to not only take care of their personal life stuff, but enable them to miss less work, right? Uh,
1: It it seems that way, absolutely. And I do want to hear from retail managers listening who are in charge of scheduling because I'm – sure that where we're sitting, this the ending just-in-time scheduling seems like a simple fix. But I'm curious to know, in reality, why it is such a juggling act? What kind of factors perhaps force your hand at being so late to give your employees notice? Because, I mean, I, I know from friends who've worked in retail, like they dealt with a similar kind of thing. And, um, I wonder if it has to do with uh, target sales being reached or not being reached, um, uh, mandates from the powers that be in your retail brand. Um, so, if folks can help fill us in on that, that would be super helpful because, yeah, I mean, it just it does seem unnecessarily cruel, and yet it's so common. Um, and while the federal initiatives. That could potentially happen uh, seem really sad to think about at the moment because uh, of the recent election and how sort of anti-working poor, um, I would argue, a lot of the politicians now in power seem to be. We do have bright spots wonderful champions, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has sponsored the Schedules That Work Act. She has introduced it. Uh, there are a number of co-sponsors on it as well, um, but it has yet to be passed. And I have a feeling that in a, quote-unquote, pro-business, pro-jobs Republican administration, um, it's unlikely to get signed but we have to remember that our state legislatures can make a difference as well. Dial up your local reps, dial up your congressional representatives, tell them that you want to see the schedules that work act get passed. If not in the U.S. Congress, then in the state Congress. Um, uh, the 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 other part of this and the reason why it is i believe especially now in these times part of our civic obligation to do as much as we can to reach out and advocate on behalf of disenfranchised groups is that for uh, retail workers in particular they're often so powerless because they're they're not unionized mm-hmm. and when <laughs> i mean i know that unions are There's a lot of politics that goes on in that a lot of it's a very polarized thing. But when workers aren't organized and they're already marginalized, it is hard for them to collectively advocate for themselves.
2: Well, sure. And I mean, um, you know, maybe some folks want to march to their state capital or something like that. But again, it goes back to the scheduling issue. Of well, like, how much free time do you have if you're also your main breadwinner and your main source of childcare and, you know, you're working crazy hours that you're not sure when you're going to be scheduled? It kind of makes it hard to even get together with like-minded individuals. Not even, I mean, like, unions aside or or activism aside,
1: it makes it hard to even have time to talk to other people about this. Well, and especially this episode coming out during the holiday shopping season we cannot underestimate the power of our pocketbooks even Mm. if we don't have a ton of money to spend if you make a decision to not support a particular store or brand because of how they treat their employees, be loud about it. Make it known. You know, organize a boycott. Uh companies listen to where the money goes. And if the money stops coming in, they'll probably maybe start paying attention. Um, so this is this is an issue that is hugely important year-round because, again, I mean, this is the largest industry sector in the United States. Millions and millions and millions of people who are stuck in what seems like a real economic trap. Um, and if this, is not, if this is not a reason to treat retail workers like humans and to just simply clean up after yourself... In your dressing rooms, even if you are in a bustling H and M, then I don't know what is. So, retail workers, let us know what's happening. Um, I personally have never worked retail. I've worked fast food. I've worked. Uh, I've done domestic work, childcare, et cetera. But um, retail has not been one of them. Caroline, have you worked a retail job? I have not. Okay, so folks, we are speaking from inexperience firsthand. So please fill us in. Let us know all of your thoughts. And for anyone who has suggestions on political organizing send them our way momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast you can also directly reach out to caroline and me i'm at kristen conger and i am at the caroline irv and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right
2: now I have a letter here from sam uh she says i was writing in about your recent genius episode in it you talked a bit about how women who do pursue science tend to gravitate toward the biological sciences which is something i noticed in college myself i went to rensselaer polytechnic institute and majored in mechanical engineering as you can guess it's primarily a technical engineering school but i noticed a strong divide among the women in choice of major The only biomedical engineering majors I knew were women or gay men, while on the other hand, I could count the number of women in my classes on one hand out of, say, 50 or so people. I always thought it was strange how women, even today, still tend to gravitate toward the organic sciences and not physics or computer science. Also would like to give a shout out to all the women like myself not conforming to stereotypical gender roles. Not only did I get my BS in mechanical engineering, I went into the Navy as a submarine officer and was part of the second or so group of women stationed aboard U.S. submarines. I now work in the commercial sector as a design engineer for building automation, but just wanted any women out there thinking about pursuing the sciences to know it is possible with some hard work and a little bit of genius.
1: So thanks, Sam. I've got a letter here from Hannah also about our episode on gender and genius. And she writes, as a cancer biology PhD candidate, I love listening to you two every day as I do science. The Boy Geniuses episode struck a chord for me as I just had a conversation with a brilliant professor the other day about females in leadership positions in STEM. We've both observed that women tend to hold positions of authority and have a ton of responsibility, but not actually a lot of power. I think this stems, pun intended, (laughs) from the perception of women as responsible multitaskers as compared to men who hold qualities like leadership and vision. Just an anecdotal observation from a newly devoted listener. I'm hoping that a new generation of informed and introspective scientists can lead the way in changing our perception of who makes a great leader. Well, thank you so much for... That insight, Hannah, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us, howstuffworks.com is our email address. And speaking of email, friends, uh, I, Kristen, have started a tiny letter uh, in response to a lot of the stuff going on in our post-election society. It's called the Do Better Digest. Um, So if you want to check that out, you can subscribe at tinyletter.com slash kristen and it's kristen c-r-i-s-t-e-n should be a good one and i hope to see you there and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs videos and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women and retail head on over to stuff you.com